Perhaps you've heard the name before Andre Crouch. Has anyone heard the name Andre Crouch? Uh, Andre Crouch died in 2015. He was a gospel singer. In fact, he was called the father of modern gospel music. So uh, many of the songs we sing in church uh, today, in our church today, kind of have their start in him. He kind of paved the way for kind of what we know as modern gospel music. But he also, many people uh, may not be aware that he actually won many Grammy Awards. Uh, He also was nominated for multiple Academy Awards. He arranged the music for movies like The Color Purple, and you are very familiar with his work. He arranged the music for The Lion King. Ah, just kidding. Uh, But the way I know Andre Crouch is there is a one song that he wrote and that he sang that my little church that I grew up in used to sing on Sunday nights. And maybe you've heard this song before, but it goes, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there is no other. Jesus is the way. And it's a really beautiful song. And it's an incredibly beautiful melody that goes along with it. But think about that for a moment. Jesus is the answer for the world today. That's an awfully big claim, isn't it? And, I mean, Jesus is, Jesus is the, not a, but the answer for what? The world today. I've seen bumper stickers and I've seen billboards that simply say, Jesus is the answer. And I go, amen, yes, but a more curious person might go, what's the question? <laughs> Jesus is the answer. What's the? Qu- I can't imagine going on Jeopardy and Alex Trebek saying, you know, this person won the 1936 Olympic 200-meter dash, and someone saying, who is Jesus, and getting it correct. It was Jesse Owens, by the way. Who is Jesse Owens? Um, if Jesus is the answer, what's the question? What's the question? Today in our scripture text, we actually see three of Jesus' disciples ask three extremely significant, deep, existential, spiritual questions, questions that I believe every human that has ever walked the planet has asked in some way and at some point in their life. The disciples ask questions that relate to where is God when life is difficult? Have you asked that question before? I'm sure you have. How can I know the way to God? And where can I find fulfillment? These are the questions that the disciples asked Jesus. And to every single question, you know what Jesus' answer is? Me. <laughs> John 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward." And then John 14, verse 1 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Then Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
And then Philip asks his question. It's kind of a Q&A with Jesus, you know. And Jesus says, well, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So the first question we see one of the disciples ask is, where is God when life is difficult? Now, our our, our scripture the, our passage begins immediately, that we're studying today, it begins immediately following Jesus telling his disciples some very difficult things. So Pastor Kyle preached two weeks ago on John chapter 13 where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. He tells them that he's going away. He tells them that one of them is going to betray him. And, and then he washes their feet. And these are all troubling things that Jesus tells them. He said, one of you is going to betray me. I'm going away. Because somebody's betraying me, I'm going to go away for a while. Um, is, you know, and it's all troubling news for the disciples. They're, they've been with Jesus for three years, and he's become their teacher, their rabbi, their master, their Lord. I mean, he, they, they've, they've, they've situated their entire lives around him, and now he says, I'm going away. And this is when Peter speaks up, and he says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus, at this point, Jesus says, well, Peter, I might as well break the news to you that actually you're going to reject me (laughs) later this week. And he's like, no, 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 no. I mean, even more troubling news, right? I mean, he tells Peter, Peter, you're going to reject me. And Peter speaks up and he says, all of this, Jesus, sounds so difficult. And you're going to, all these troubling things, and you're going to leave us alone to deal with them ourselves? And Jesus says, Peter, where I'm going, you can't follow right now but you will afterward. And Jesus then turns to the rest of the disciples and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And I imagine they're like, what? Let not our hearts be troubled. You just told us all of the most troubling things that you, that you could possibly tell us. And you're saying, let not our hearts be troubled. Are you kidding me, Jesus? And Jesus explains himself. He says, guys, believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. You see, Peter's question, Lord, where are you going? That's not unlike the question that many of us ask at some point in our lives, which is, Lord, where are you? Anybody ever ask that question? I know I'm not the only one. (laughs) Lord, where where are you? And the answer for Peter and the answer for us is exactly the same. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And you say, well, how can I not let my heart be troubled when it feels like I'm all in? Well, Jesus gives Peter a few, few assurances that I think also apply to us. He tells Peter, he says, look, where I'm going, you can't follow me yet. But you will afterward. But he also tells Peter, he says, there is a purpose from, to my departure from this world. I'm not leaving arbitrarily. I'm going to prepare a place for you. There's a purpose for me leaving. I'm not leaving you alone for no reason at all. Just trust me, there's a reason for why I'm leaving. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And 
Peter was probably afraid, Lord, are you going to forget us? And he says, and, and Jesus is saying, I'm not forgetting you guys. I'm not leaving you behind. I'm going ahead of you, and I'm going to bring you to where I'm going. I will return to you. You will see me again. You see, Jesus, in this moment, and remember, this is just a few days before Jesus is going to the cross. In his last sort of, his last meal with his disciples, he's telling them to trust that he's not going to abandon them or forget them, even when the cross is going to feel like they're losing him. He says, I'm not leaving you. I'm come, I will come again to get you. You know, our oldest son, many of you know this, some of you may not know, but our oldest son was adopted from Ethiopia. And the way it worked 10, 11, 12 years ago, when you adopted a child, from, I don't know how it works today, but when you adopted a child from Ethiopia 10 years ago, you had to take two trips to the country for the adoption to be finalized. The first trip, you would go to Ethiopia. You would spend, that was where we met our son. We spent all day in the orphanage with him for a week. And then on the last day, we went to court. We went to Ethiopian court in Addis Ababa, where I, that was where we held our son up in front of a judge, and the gavel came down, and they said, he's your son. One of the most incredible moments of our lives. Beautiful moment. But then you have to leave the country with your child still in the country. You see, the second trip is when you go and you take your child home. And for us, that time between those two trips was two months, like two of the most painful months of our lives. I said, when I think back to those two months, it's just like a fog. Like we were just, I mean, just hazy <laughs> trying to get through. It was painful because we left our son in another country in an orphanage, even though we knew we were coming back to get him. And when we left Ethiopia for the first time, I remember the last day that um, we were in the orphanage, we were holding him, we we're snuggling, he was the cutest little baby. And I remember saying the, some version of this to my son. I quoted what Jesus will say to his disciples later. He said to his disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And I remember quoting that to my son, and essentially what I was saying was, son, I love you. You are my son. <laughs> we have to go away now, though, and you can't follow me. You can't follow us right now, but you will afterward. But while we're away, I want to assure you of something, son. We're going to prepare a place for you. With a nursery and with a crib, we're going to fill your room with toys. We're stocking the fridge with milk, formula, <laughs> and we're, putting that, we're stocking the pantry with puffs and yogurt bites and pureed green beans. You're going to hate it, but all the other snacks are amazing. There's going to be a TV. You've never seen a TV. It's going to be amazing. Elmo, Sesame Street, it's going to be awesome. So don't lose heart, son. Don't let your heart be troubled. I know that you're living here in this orphanage. I know that you feel all alone, but do not lose heart. We're not abandoning you. We're not forgetting about you. We are going to prepare a place for you, and we will return to take you there. And you will be with us forever. And we kissed him on the forehead, and we said goodbye. And for us, those two months were incredibly painful. But that was the process. That's what it took to adopt our son, to bring our son into our lives. And he was seven months old at the time, so he didn't comprehend what was happening. He didn't, I don't know if he comprehended that we were leaving him, but if he could have comprehended it, he may have been questioning what we were doing. Wait a second, I thought you were adopting me. 
I thought, you're my parents. Why are you leaving now? Why are you going? Uh, He may have questioned why we were doing it or why we were going or why we couldn't do it another way. In the moment, he may have, if he was aware, he may have felt abandoned. Or maybe he would have even questioned the trustworthiness of everything we said and doubted. Is he really going to come back? Are they really going to come back? But the truth never changed. Rebecca and I were not abandoning him. We weren't leaving him alone. We were hell or high water. We were going to return and bring him home. Our leaving was for his good, as painful as it was for everyone. It was part of the process to bring him home into our lives. And I think for Jesus, what he wanted Peter and for the others to know is that his very leaving the earth was for them. Even though to them it felt like the worst possible scenario, Jesus was trying to assure Peter, what's going to happen later this week? It's going to feel like the worst thing, but I need you to trust me that I'm preparing a place for you, and I'm going to bring you there. I can't explain every detail to you. I bet Jesus was probably saying to Peter. He couldn't explain every detail, but he was inviting Peter and the disciples to trust him, and he was assuring them that he would not forget them and that he was coming back. Listen, it's no secret, life is hard. Life can be very difficult, and we will have moments in our lives where we ask, where has God gone? I sure don't feel him right now. And you know, one of the frustrating things is if you open your Bible and you're trying to figure out where is God right now while my marriage is falling apart, the Bible's not going to give you an airtight answer about what God is doing at all times in every moment. And in those moments where you don't know exactly what God is doing, you have to look at the life of Jesus and the promises of Jesus and see that he suffers with us, he goes ahead of us, he never forgets those he loves, and he has promised that he's coming back for us. And even when it feels like he has abandoned us, he is inviting us to trust that he is good and that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. Where is God when life is difficult? The answer is Jesus. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in what? Me. What's the answer to the question of where is God when life is difficult? Jesus. Second question, Thomas asks. So Peter asks his question. Now it's Thomas's turn. He comes to the microphone. And Thomas says to him, how can I know the way to God? That's a question that I think everyone asks in some way, even if they don't use that language. Everybody wants to know, how do I find my way to God. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where, you're talking about where you're going. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. So Thomas says, okay, Jesus, you're going to prepare a place for us. Awesome. That sounds great. I want to go to there, to quote Liz Lemon. Anyone? How do we get there, is Thomas's question. And Jesus says, only through me. Only through me. Now, this is a question, how can I know the way to God? This is a question that anyone who has ever considered the existence of God or the possibility of an afterlife has considered. If there is a God, if there is an afterlife, how can I enter into God's presence? And every religion, every philosophy 
has their own version of an answer of how you can enter into the presence of God. And Jesus' answer to this question is, the only way you can get to God is through me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Notice that Jesus doesn't use a, he uses the, the definite article. I'm the way, the truth, the life. That is a provocative, controversial claim. In our culture, we live in a pluralistic culture. People, we, You all know people of multiple religions and backgrounds and faiths. We live in Bay Ridge, one of the most diverse neighbor, uh, religiously diverse neighborhoods probably in, the, in America. So what about, Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. What about people of other faiths? Can they not know God or their beliefs not true? What about people who don't believe in any faith? Can they not experience the presence of God? You see, this is a very controversial claim. And it's easy, I think, you know, for people to write off Christians like me who make these claims as closed-minded. You say that Jesus is the only way to God? That's closed-minded. What are you, some kind of closed-minded fundamentalist? You don't understand the complexity of living in a pluralistic society in a modern world? But listen, it's not fundamentalist Christians who make this claim. I'm not the one who makes this claim. Jesus is the one who makes this claim. Yes, we live, in a, we live in a pluralistic society that says all beliefs are equal, all beliefs are valid, and it's, it's said to us that it would be arrogant, it would be arrogant to claim that your belief is the only valid belief system about God. And so there is a real temptation that I, we all feel, I feel it, to not want to rock the boat. I feel this temptation. I live in Bay Ridge, one of the most religiously diverse neighborhoods in the city. I want to be polite. I want to be respectful. I want to be tolerant. I love my neighbors. They're my friends. They believe different things about me. They're good people. But yet, I read Jesus making this bold claim. He says, I am the way. And I go, well, what, what do I do with this? How do I square this with a pluralistic society? And how do I live in this pluralistic neighborhood while still taking Jesus at his word? Years ago, when I was in graduate school, um, I was at a debate on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill. And there was a Muslim scholar, a Jewish scholar, and a Christian scholar. Sounds like I'm setting up a joke. I'm not. I was really at a debate with a Muslim scholar, a Christian scholar, a Jewish scholar. Um, I'm sure they walked into a bar together afterwards, and that's where the joke started. But um, I was at the debate in a lecture hall. But they, they, they each uh, scholar gave their kind of presence. And there was also just a, a humanist, like atheist, agnostic type of person as well. And each of these scholars sort of gave their opinions for religion and all that sort of stuff. And then at the end, there was a Q&A section where students and faculty could ask questions. And at the very end, one student stands up and he says, can't we all just agree that each of you, and he's talking to these scholars, have found what is true for you? And I, and I understand the student's impulse, don't you? Like, he wanted to ease the tension. There was some tension in that room. And he wanted everybody to feel equal, everybody to get along. But what was fascinating to see in that moment is that the Muslim scholar, the Jewish scholar, and the Christian scholar all rallied together, <laughs> took the same position, and all explained to this student very kindly that his proposal was actually incredibly offensive to all three of them. And, and you say, why? Why would, it, to, to say something like, can't we all just agree that each religion has found what is true for you? To say that, it sounds very polite, 
Every, but all three of these scholars said that's actually a very offensive framing. That's a very, a very offensive proposal. Why would that be offensive to a Jewish scholar, Muslim scholar, and a Christian scholar? Because saying that three opposing beliefs are equally true is saying that truth really doesn't matter and that neither three of them actually believe what is true. You're minimizing everybody's beliefs by saying, why can't we all just say everything's true for you and not true for everybody? And it was actually the Muslim scholar that spoke up and he said, I actually respect the two scholars sitting to my right and to my left because they respect my claims of what God is like and my truth claims enough to disagree and debate with me. And he said to the student, what you are suggesting is that we not take our truth claims seriously. And everybody's like, oh, you put that dude in his place. But you see, it sounds polite, doesn't it? But in reality, what this student was doing was he was minimizing the claims of all three scholars. You may have heard the parable of the blind men and the elephant. You know, there's the story where uh, multiple blind men walk into a room where there's an elephant. And they, uh, they go around, they decide, I'm going I'm to see what an elephant is like. And so one uh, blind man touches the, the elephant's trunk and goes, whoa, it's like a snake, like a python or something. Like an elephant must be a snake. And then another one grabs a tusk, grabs the elephant's tusk and says, oh, no, 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 an elephant is like a spear. And another one grabs the tail and says, oh, an elephant is like a rope. And another one touches the legs and says, the elephant is like a tree. And the other one touches his body and says, no, 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 the elephant is like a wall. And the parable is often t applied to religion to say each religion understands a small part of what God is like, and everybody is telling their own truth, so we should all just get along. But do you understand the problem with this parable? The arrogance of it. The narrator in the parable can see the whole elephant. So when someone says, hey, all religion is equally true, you each have a piece of the truth, that person is saying, you guys are blind, but I see the whole elephant. So to say, all, we should be tolerant of all religions and all truth claims are equally true is to say, actually, I know what's true and you guys are just kind of playing, you guys are blind in the dark. And how cruel would it be if you could see the whole elephant and not tell the blind man what the elephant is actually like? My point is, not, my point is simply to say, it is a, it is a measure of respect to believe a truth claim and to respect someone else's truth claim enough to have your own. But to say everybody's got their own truth is to disrespect anybody's convictions. So where does that leave us? If we want to seek truth, we don't minimize truth. We take truth claims seriously. And Jesus's claim is exactly what he told Thomas. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So how do we know the way to God? Jesus said, it's only through him, which means that Jesus claimed that he's the son of God. He makes a bold claim that requires each of us to make a decision about who he is. Is he telling the truth or not? Is he the son of God or not? You see, some people will say Jesus is a good moral teacher. Some people will say that he's a good example for us. But Jesus himself does not allow us to minimize him in that way. Jesus says, no, 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 I'm the way, the truth, the life. If you want to take me seriously, you have to take that claim seriously. Watchman Nee, you guys, thought I'm, you guys think I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis. I'm going to quote Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was a leader in the Chinese persecuted church, and he, says, and he said that we must decide for ourselves if Jesus' claim to Thomas is true or not. 
And so this is what Watchman Nee says. He says, first, if Jesus claims to be God, and yet in fact he is not, then Jesus has to be a madman or a lunatic. Second, if Jesus is neither God nor a lunatic, then Jesus has to be a liar because he's deceiving others with his lies, telling them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Third, Watchman Nee says, if he's neither of these, he must be God. You can only choose one of the three possibilities. If you do not believe that he is God, you have to consider him a madman. If you cannot take him for either of the two, you have to take him for a liar. And he says there's no need for us to prove if Jesus of Nazareth is God or not. All we have to do is find out if he is a lunatic or a liar. If he is neither, then he must be the son of God. So I urge you all to consider the claims of Jesus. And I can urge you to consider the truth claims of other religions for that matter. It's the respectful thing to do. I have, I do. And this is my, I constantly consider these things. This is my life. And the conclusion that I keep coming back to and I keep placing my faith in is that I have come to believe that Jesus was telling the truth and that he is indeed the way into the presence of God. And if that's true, that means that you can know God by knowing Jesus. And that means that if there really is an afterlife, then, G and then, then Jesus really is there and he really is preparing a place for you. How can I know God? Well, to quote Andre Crouch, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Where can I find fulfillment is the third question. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus, I just want to see the Father, and that'll be enough. That will be enough for me. I don't need anything else, Jesus. I just want to see the Father. I'll be fulfilled. That's all I want. That's all I need for you to show me the Father. Have you guys ever said anything like that? All I want is fill in the blank. All I need is fill in the blank. God, if you would just give me fill in the blank. God, if you would just show me how to fill in the blank, that would be enough for me. That would be enough for me. I'll be satisfied. I'll be fulfilled. I won't ask for anything else. That'll be enough. You see, we tell ourselves that we are one or two acquisitions or achievements or relationships away from total fulfillment. And you think, once God gives me this or shows me that, I'll be good. But will you? Have you ever been? Will you be satisfied if you could just get the thing or find out the thing, or discover the thing, or find the person. Philip said, if I can just see the Father. And Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus essentially tells Peter, or Philip, he says, you're looking for the Father, but I've been with you all along. I'm one with the Father, the Father is one with me. If you've seen me, you've seen him. I've been here all along. The fulfillment, the satisfaction, the contentment, the rest for your weary soul that you've been waiting for, I've been with you all along. I've been right here. You see, some of us, we're in our, some of us are waiting 
for something else in our life to come along to give us the feeling of fulfillment that we crave. But Jesus has already said, I'm the life. I'm the life. He's been with us all along. You say, where can I find fulfillment? Jesus has been trying to tell us. We've been studying the Gospel of John, and Jesus has said, I, I'm the bread of life. Jesus has said, I'm the living water. Drink of me, you'll never thirst again. Jesus has said, I'm the light of the world. Jesus says, I'm the door. Anybody enters me, they will be saved. Jesus has said, I am the resurrection, I am the life. Jesus has said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You say, where can I find fulfillment? Jesus has been screaming at the top of his lungs all throughout the Gospel of John, and he's screaming to you, me, me. Abundant life is found in Jesus. He's the answer. So if Jesus is the answer... What are the questions? That was how we started this time, our time together. Jesus tells his disciples that the three biggest questions, or Jesus tells us that the three biggest questions that we all ask, questions about suffering, questions about afterlife, and questions about satisfaction. I mean, that, all the big questions are summed up right there. And Jesus says, they're all answered in me. And these answers, they confuse the disciples. They were like, this doesn't make sense. But later that week, they would begin to understand. Remember, Jesus told Peter, he said, where I'm going, you cannot follow. He was talking about the cross. He said, Peter, you can't do what I'm about to do. You can't follow me there. That's my job. The cross is my job. You can't follow me there, but you will be able to follow me afterwards. See, he was talking about the cross. Jesus was going to die a death that he didn't deserve for his disciples and for you and for me so that they would not have to follow him into death. But then three days later, he rises from the grave, and then he stands there and he invites them. He says, okay, I told you you could follow me afterward. Now follow me into eternal life. I went into the death. You're wondering where I was going, Peter? I was going somewhere you don't want to go so that you could follow me somewhere you want to go afterward. I went to the cross, and now I'm standing alive, having defeated death, and now I say, now's the time to follow me. You see, and when, when, when the disciples saw Jesus risen from the dead, the, the, their, the answers to their questions began to take fuller shape. Questions about suffering? They, re, they learned that Jesus suffered ultimately so that we would not suffer forever. Questions about afterlife? Jesus defeated death. We don't have to be afraid of death now. He's preparing a place for those of us who follow him. Questions about fulfillment? If Jesus rose from the dead, that proves his claims to be God. That's what he told Philip. He said, if you don't believe me, just look at the works that I'm going to do. It proves his claim that he is God. And if he is God, that means that he alone is the path to life. You see, what are the questions? The questions are, how do we find our way to God? And the answer is Jesus. And to some, it may sound trite and it may sound trivial. But Andre Crouch's song is sweeter to my ears and truer to my soul than ever before. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Anybody know it? Above him there's no other. Jesus is the way. I know Lorraine's watching online. Lorraine, I know you know the words of this song. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there's no other. 
Jesus is the way. Father, we thank you for Jesus who told us and showed us and pleaded with us to believe that the way to you is through him. And so, God, we confess that you are, um, that you have given us life in Jesus. And if we follow him, we will know you. And we thank you for that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.